0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at Schwepp.net. Episode 145, Thinking Through Monotheism, Henotheism, Polytheism, and Dualism in Late Antiquity. Well, that is a title, gentle listeners, which doesn't really trip off the tongue, but that's because we have come to another one of those episodes where we talk about concepts rather than the nitty-gritty of what actually happened in history. But this isn't exactly one of our methodologies for episodes, because the terms we shall be discussing in this episode, notably monotheism, polytheism, along with its poor cousin paganism, and dualism, these terms aren't exactly terms that can really aspire to the status of academic categories at all. They're pretty vague and dependent on local positioning rather than on any kind of root, strict meaning. They are, in a sense, a bit like flavors rather than strict categories. You'll see what I mean as this episode progresses. But we do need to riff on these terms for a bit, I think, as this will be helpful for a lot of our listeners. Does monotheist simply mean believing in only one god? Clearly not. Otherwise, all the late Platonists are monotheists, right? And most folks would consider them polytheists, or perhaps pagan monotheists, a contested term we shall get back to anon. Does polytheist simply mean believing in more than one god? clearly not or clement of alexandria is a polytheist because remember he's quite happy to follow the hebrew scriptures in calling angels gods from time to time and he occasionally refers to the planets as gods as well and any sane commentator will call clement a christian or perhaps if you want to get specific a hellenizing platonizing jewish christian and what about dualism doesn't dualism have something to do with believing in two gods well not really no So clearly, if these terms don't simply mean belief in, insert number here, gods, but have more complex meanings, it should be worth our while to explore them a bit, since we're using them so much at this juncture in the podcast, and hopefully the process of exploration will amount to a solid grounding in the relevant aspects of their meanings. The following quote from Garth Fowden, eminent historian of late antiquity, on Mono, poly, and Heno may be helpful, quote, polytheism means belief that the divine realm is populated by a plurality of gods of broadly comparable status, not fully subordinated to or comprehended within a single god of higher status. Henotheism denotes affirmative belief in one god without the sharply defined exclusive line which makes it a belief in him as the only god. Monotheism means belief in one unique god to the exclusion of all others. It need hardly be added that to use language at all in regard to such matters is to betray the subtlety of human thought and intuition. Monotheism, in particular, is much more ambiguous as a reality than its definition might lead one to expect. Space has to be allowed for angels and for the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, but there are consequential differences among these three broad categories of belief, and especially between polytheism and monotheism. And I will argue that within monotheism, traditions such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam behave very differently on the historical plane, whatever their common theological denominators." Foudin is noting both that these terms are tough to discuss in a cut-and-dried way, and that they are important for understanding history, so we can't just abandon them. So hopefully the exploratory contour map approach taken in this episode will help our listeners flesh out what we and other scholars mean when we're using these terms. And we'll throw in the various dualisms, which Fowden doesn't address in this quote, because there has been and will continue to be a lot of discussion of dualism in the podcast, and it's a good idea to figure out what the heck that's supposed to mean as well. But let's start our riffing on semantic spheres with the idea... Of monotheism. It has been observed in various contexts that the progress of antiquity from the Hellenistic into the post-Hellenistic and then into late antiquity led to a gradual tendency toward increasing monotheism across the religious spectrum, such that the eventual hegemony of Christianity, and often in this narrative Christianity is the monotheist religion par excellence of antiquity or late antiquity, but of course really that's Islam, This eventual hegemony didn't come out of nowhere, but rather was a logical development of a long-term trend, right? As with many generalizations, there is a bit of truth in this as far as it goes, but it's only true, really, if by monotheism we mean something like positing a supreme god ruling over all the others. As the Roman period progresses, we start to see, for example, altars raised to the highest god and many other signs of a unifying tendency in popular religious forms. Though, of course, these need to be balanced against the continuing, robustly polytheist approach to all the subsidiary deities which might exist under the purview of said Theos Hypsistos, highest god. The Stoics, already in the 3rd century BCE, posited a single supreme god Pneuma fire interpenetrating the whole cosmos. But, of course, they were also perfectly happy talking about the gods. It is true that we see a general trend as time progresses in the long era that we're looking at, that among intellectuals like the Stoics, there is indeed a tendency toward attributing more and more importance to a highest supreme god, or to a supreme god which is the emanatory source of all the subsidiary gods, as among the Platonists, many of whom we've discussed in the podcast. If we turn to Maximus of Madauros, a grammarian of the 4th and 5th centuries CE, living in North Africa, who corresponded with the Christian thinker Augustine. We get a picture of what a cultured, let's call it polytheist monotheism of this sort, looked like. As far as Maximus is concerned, every thinking person knows that there is one ultimate god. But of course, all the various cults are perfectly justified as worshipping various aspects or powers of that god. Quote, Who is so foolish, so mentally astray as to deny the very certain truth that there is one supreme God without beginning, without natural offspring, ooh, a bit of a dig against the Christians there, like a great and splendid father, his powers that permeate the universe he has made, we call upon by many names, since to all of us his right name is, of course, unknown, for God is a name common to all cults. And so it is that while with differing prayers we pursue, as it were, his members piecemeal, we seem, in truth, to worship him entire, end of quote. Now, the Platonist Celsus made very similar points in refuting the Christians of his day back in the second century, as we discussed in episode 98 of the podcast. Clearly, the point of dispute between these polytheists polemicizing against the Christians and the Christians themselves, is not that there is a supreme God. Christians, on the one hand, and polytheist intellectuals, on the other hand, agreed that this was an obvious truth. It's not only true, it's clearly true to everyone in the world, right? The point was, what then? Or, so what? What are the cultic and social repercussions of this obvious fact, that there's only one supreme God? So do we mean by monotheist believing in the existence of only one God? So this is slightly different from saying there's one supreme God. This means there is only one God. But again, I think we mean something more than this. If it's just about belief, then there's no requirement for worship or anything like that. But historically, monotheists not only believe there's one God and only one God, they think that this God is supremely important and must be worshipped. Worshipping other gods, for example, would be a disaster. We see this from the Jews of the first century CE, right, who narrowly avoided a massive pogrom simply because the emperor Gaius, also known as Caligula, happened to die before he could punish them for their refusal to set his statue in the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. If he'd lived another couple years, things might have gone very, very badly for the Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were, for the most part, monotheists in this basic sense of belief. They refused to worship other gods than their god. Though there were, of course, exceptions, like the Jews of Elephantine in Egypt, who had a cult of Yahu and also of his consort, so they had a god and a goddess. But let's take the Jews as a whole, generalized. Now, many scholars prefer to consider even the Jews without a goddess to be henotheists rather than monotheists. So to return to the term henotheist... It was coined to describe people who think that lots of other gods may or may not exist, but the point is that they only worship their single god. Or as Fauden put it in the passage we cited earlier, quote, Henotheism denotes affirmative belief in one god without the sharply defined exclusive line, which makes it a belief in him as the only god. Now, it's pretty widely agreed that the earlier Jews, the Bronze Age Jews, were henotheists see episode 11 of the podcast, but they seem to have been developing for some time into proper monotheists of the type we're discussing here. They believe not only that one god and only one god exists, but they also refuse to worship any other gods, which will have been false gods as far as they were concerned. So they deny the existence of other gods, but they also make a major point about not worshiping them. So is monotheism then definable as A, belief that a single god is the only god? other gods don't even exist, or if they exist as some kind of supernatural power, they can't be classed as gods, right? They have to be angels or demons or whatever. And B, exclusive worship of that single god. I think that's a tolerable working description of what tends to be meant by monotheism. But it still leaves out the flip side, the radical exclusion or denial of other traditions which is what polytheist intellectuals like Celsus and Maximus saw as so bizarre in their Christian opponents. This third ingredient of monotheism appears more and more in the language of late antique thinkers, not just Christians, people who believe, for example, in evil daimones. Um, Seemingly, everyone always believed in evil daimones or some equivalent term in the Near East, but belief in them spread throughout the Mediterranean in late antiquity. People like Porphyry or Augustine, for whom wrong worship wasn't just ineffectual or silly or whatever. You're not just worshiping idols that have no power. You're actively courting the powers of evil, right? Again, Hellenistic-era Jews are mostly monotheists in this sense, certainly, and so are most Christians. Maybe here we can say that the Hermetic authors, who are highly attached to their single noetic god, I'm talking about the Corpus Hermeticum here and some of the Stobias Hermetica, and the Platonists whose metaphysical systems culminate from Plotinus onward in an utterly unitary or hyper-unitary first principle. Maybe we can say that these aren't monotheists in the full sense because they don't seem to care that much what kind of cultic practice you engage in on the side, as it were. So they satisfy criterion A, belief that there is only one supreme god, much better than your average third-century Christian who wants to have his unique god cake whilst eating it with an incarnated-as-a-human-being icing, right? And maybe also thinks that there's a Holy Spirit cherry on top that needs to fit in somewhere as well. But this Platonist or Hermetic monotheist position doesn't embrace what seems to have been a defining feature of Christianity as it came to be, and later, of Islam, namely their non-inclusive universalist claims. So we claim that our God is the universal God, it's not an ethnic God, it's a God for all of humanity, but you cannot worship other gods, or if you do, you're in trouble. Now, alert listeners will here notice something we've alluded to already, that monotheist traditions, especially Catholic and Orthodox Christianities, while claiming to be the strictest of monotheists, really aren't that monotheist in the sense that late Platonism is. Namely, in that they have hugely developed cults of Mary, of saints, of angels who receive petitionary prayers. They venerate icons and relics, and they practice lots of other forms of cult that look suspiciously like worship of entities other than God. If you look at Plotinus, for example, he's much more monotheist in in a certain sense than these guys. The rebuttal here from the Christians, uh, to take the classic Catholic example, is we never worship the saints. We merely venerate them We only worship God. So, as an outsider looking in, you can clearly have a monotheist tradition which maintains itself as staunchly monotheist, while potentially looking awfully polytheist to outsiders. Extreme Protestants are especially keen to point out how much of this polytheist flavor survives in the Catholic Church, and they see it as a bad thing, needless to say. Similarly, takfiri Muslims These are your Wahhabis or extreme Salafis. I'm definitely not tarring all Salafis with the same brush here, just the intolerant and allegedly literalist ones who like to go around telling the majority of Muslims that they aren't proper Muslims. These guys often accuse Muslims who, for example, visit the tomb sites of important awliya, friends of God, or perform other ritual actions, such as venerating the Prophet a little too much. They accuse these Muslims of committing shirk, idolatry, or worship of that which is other than God. Literally, the term shirk refers to association of anything with God, and so it's not as simple as idolatry, but more on that when we get to Islamic religious thinking and metaphysics. The point for now is that in terms of monotheism, there are at least three things to take into account, right? The first two are the basic opinions, that there is only one God worthy of worship, And that we must worship that god, right? That this god is important. It's not just part of the fauna of the universe. It's a a key to human thriving. The third element isn't so much a a theological position. It's the question of the optional extras that come with actual cult and how these are to be explained in terms of our monotheism. Now, some of the hermetica we've looked at in this podcast at least mention only one god, a noetic high power who is properly to be called Theos, God. And we even have hermetic hymns to this highest god, so we know a bit about how he was worshipped by some hermetists. Now this looks a lot like monotheism in the basic propositional sense. Granted, we don't have too much hermetic material decrying the worshippers of multiple gods, anti-polytheist hermetica, as you might say, But that being said, we do have a lot of condemnation of what you might call wrong worship. One striking example is the apocalypse in the Hermetic Asclepius, which we discussed in some detail in episode 105, where the true religion, idealized Egyptian temple cult, is contrasted with the false religions of the foreign rabble. Quote, Are you not aware, Asclepius, that Egypt is the image of heaven? Or, to put it better, the place where everything that is directed and superintended in heaven is transferred and comes down to earth indeed if we are to tell the full truth our land is the temple of the whole world end of quote now here we have something which although it's polytheist in the sense that egyptian temples are presumably dedicated to a bunch of different gods right it's kind of monotheist in its dedication to the highest God. This God is given different names in different Hermetica, but that's not such a big deal. But also it's emphasis on his saving worship. And as we see in this passage, denigration of false traditions. Egypt is the temple of the whole world. And um, it's those evil foreigners who are threatening the Egyptian religion, who are also threatening the stability of reality itself, right? Another way of looking at this would be The transformation of what started out as a national or ethnic cult, in this case Egyptian religion, into an idea of a cult with universal claims, right? The temple of the whole world, which is arguably what Christianity was, a kind of universalized apocalyptic Judaism. So is this hermetic stance or the universalist salvific claims of thinkers like Iamblichus and Proclus? We'll be getting to Proclus in upcoming episodes of the podcast was this something that we could call pagan monotheism Uh, there are a lot of other examples of what has been called pagan monotheism in antiquity which could be cited here there are two volumes on the subject of pagan monotheism from 1999 and 2010 giving loads of examples and studies of different aspects not just intellectuals and elite religion but also temple cult and stuff like this from antiquity Studies and discussions of what might be considered monotheist in these pagan systems of religion. Some scholars have denied that pagan monotheism is a useful term. Obviously, it all depends on what you mean by pagan and what you mean by monotheism. But the sticking point here, it seems to me, is that the late antique monotheists, notably Hellenized Jews, Orthodox Christians, and Muslims, they all had the full package. Belief that only one God exists and belief that he's supremely important and universal, and belief that the proper worship of that god was utterly essential for human salvation, with the side note that there were loads of wrong worship options out there which were not legitimate worship of other gods, but were illegitimate worship of non-gods, or even of evil demonic powers. Now we've maybe come up with a decent working description of monotheism here, as it was sort of on the ground in the social sphere. Any faith which has these main ingredients we've been talking about. But when we put flesh on the bones, the lines between monotheism and polytheism in late antiquity blur. Because whether we like it or not, the kind of universalism and exclusivity we tend to associate with late antique monotheism can already be found, at least on a rhetorical level, in polytheist thinkers, like, for example, Celsus. In the second century, who claims that there is a single exclusive alethes logos, a true account of reality, and although it might legitimately be expressed or engaged with through innumerable cults, there's at least one cult which is not legitimate, namely Christianity. So in this sense, Celsus is thinking like a monotheist, even though he's a polytheist. He's thinking in terms of a kind of orthodoxy, you might say. Then we turn to a monotheist like Basilides, whom we discussed in episode 82. Basilides, the earliest known Christian philosopher, recognizes that there's only one true God, the utterly ineffable transcendent father. But he's totally relaxed about stuff like sacrifices and other marks of traditional religiosity, which got the knickers of many Christians into a twist. So he kind of thinks like a polytheist, you might say. Or he has a polytheist vibe about him. The same could be said in certain senses, limited senses, for Philo and Clement of Alexandria. And maybe this is just an Alexandrian thing, but that's another story. But let's make this even more concrete. Let's consider two late antique Greco-Romans living in a provincial mid-sized city. One of these, let's call him, I don't know, Rupert was raised in a Christian household, but a cultured Hellenized Christian household of the late 3rd century. He and his family and his slaves are all Christians, but you'd hardly know it to look at them. Their villa is decorated with frescoes depicting the mysteries of Dionysus in allegorical imagery. He reads Homer and the Attic tragedians in his spare time. His friends, drawing on the Hellenized elite of this little provincial city, Hardly discuss religious issues at all when they get together over wine, but everyone knows that Publius is an initiate of Mithras, Gaius is a Platonist, a follower of a roughly Platinian philosophical school with an easygoing attitude to cult practice, and Cassius is a rather hardline Christian of this or that theological persuasion. In fact, everyone in Rupert's circle happens to be, on the level of theological belief, a monotheist. Or maybe a henotheist in the case of Publius, since he, of course, knows that Mithras is the supreme god who created the whole world, but he can be combined with other gods depending on local pantheon and so forth. So, all of these guys agree that, of course, there is only one supreme god, that while one might call the stars and planets gods and goddesses, another might insist that they're angelic servants of God. But the difference is only one of terminology more than substance, and none of them get too hung up on it. And all of them are quite happy with the present situation in the Greco-Roman world, where their elite cultural status as Hellenically educated members of the local government is a main linchpin of the social order. And no one wants to do anything radical and frightening like destroy temples or, gods forbid, erase age-old Roman customs of invoking the traditional pantheon and doing auguries and stuff like that. So Rupert is part of what we might call an easygoing monotheist milieu of late antiquity. On the other hand, living in the same town as Rupert, there's another guy. We'll call him Steve. Steve is a serious philosopher. In fact, a disciple of the great Iamblichus. And he is thus serious About the truth. Not only are the gods real, says Steve, they have allotted places in a rationally deducible metaphysical and physical hierarchy, and the whole world, including the political and social order here on Earth, reflects that hierarchy. A little bit like Egypt, the temple of the whole world, does in the Hermetic Asclepius, right? Steve is what you might call a polytheist hardliner. This new movement of Christianity cannot be compromised with, but must be destroyed as it impiously denies what everyone knows, namely that the gods are responsible for everything in the universe, and that without the gods' help, humanity and human culture are doomed. And when Steve looks around himself at the late Roman world, he can see every day the product of the impious Christian presumption in the way things are going to shit, right? Christians, for Steve, are atheoi, the first widespread use of the term atheist, was directed precisely against Christians who denied the gods. And as such, the Christians, the Christian atheists, are an ontological threat to all that which is good and worth preserving. Steve is thus a polytheist, but one who shares a lot of the ways of thinking with what we might associate, in our oversimplified way, with the hardline monotheism of late antiquity. Now, Probably the Ruperts and Steves of late antiquity were met with in, all the time in the street, and they existed on a broad spectrum. In other words, monotheism and polytheism as theological positions was one thing in late antiquity. And, as argued earlier, there was a general move to a quasi-monotheist position across Greco-Roman culture, already afoot anyway, right, before the rise of monotheism to hegemony. So more and more people were monotheists in some ideological sense as antiquity progressed anyway. They believed that there is only one supreme god. But we can't really come to terms with what we mean by the terms mono and poly without looking at ways of thinking. Orthodox thinking versus older modes of knowledge making, ideas about universalism and exclusion, and so on. So that's an example of a couple late antique people, a monotheist and a polytheist, showing how it's hard to generalize about what we mean by monotheist and polytheist once we get outside the sphere of just basic theological positions. Now what about dualism? Well, gentle listener, this is another one of those terms which is more of a vibe than a really definable historical entity. In the context of history religions... So we need to exclude other uses of the term dualism, such as the dualism discussed in philosophy departments, right, whereby, for example, Descartes is a dualist. Forget about that. In the context of history of religions, dualism generally refers to religions which have two main gods or two powerful principles, often engaged in a cosmic conflict of some kind, right? Uh, Manichaeans were a major force for dualism in the Greco-Roman world in our period. Zoroastrianism, or Mazdaism, is often described as a dualist religion as well, though it's mostly confined to the eastern side of things, in our period the Sasanian Empire. Now here's the problem. As Celsus already noted and criticized in the second century, all Christianity is at least a little bit dualist, in that it believes in the devil, Satan, Beliar, Samael, or any of his countless names. Plus all his evil demonic servitors, Uh, In Christian literature, we often find whole royal courts of demonic agencies surrounding Satan as a dark mirror to the divine celestial court of God. And this shows up quite early in in Christian texts like the Ascension of Isaiah and many others, but of course, readers of the demon-infested grimoire literature of early modern Europe are well aware it has a very long afterlife. So demons are everywhere in Christianity. And the dualism of Christianity is a kind of matter of emphasis. Modern-day Baptists or other radical Protestant sects can be said to be highly dualist in their approach, since, like the Leuven brothers, they affirm that, quote, Satan is real, working in spirit. You can see him and hear him in this world every day. Satan is real, working with power. He will tempt you and lead you astray. End of quote. But of course... They all agree that God is supreme and will eventually defeat Satan and so on and so forth. So this is what you might call mitigated dualism because it's not real dualism in the sense that Satan isn't the equal of God, right? He's a subsidiary guy. He's a tool of God. But where does the mitigation end and the hardcore dualism begin? You can't get much more dualist than Manichaeism, right? Cosmic principle of darkness co-eternal with cosmic principle of light, that's pretty dualist. But eventual victory of the light over the darkness, which nothing can prevent, that seems a bit mitigating, right? Many of the more hardcore so-called dualist heresies of medieval Christianity, the Paulicians, the Bogomils, the Cathars, and so forth, are forms of mitigated dualism, since they always posit God the Father as the supreme, inevitably victorious principle, but they get pretty dualist in terms of their vibe, And then what are we to make of the Gnostics, or the demiurgical biblical traditions? The demiurge in question, as we know, is either an evil or at best a misguided second god or subsidiary god, but his reign is pretty total down here in the world in which we dwell. Very often, scholarly interpretation of ancient so-called Gnostic texts will invoke A thoroughgoing dualism as a primary or even the primary characteristic of ancient Gnosticism. But Christianity is already dualist, as we've argued just now. And it's also demiurgic, for that matter, but that's another story. So again, maybe the best we can do with this dualism idea is to consider it a matter of emphasis. Religions that emphasize the power of the bad guys, the dark side, the forces of evil or ignorance, are describable as highly dualistic, from Manichaeism down through a long series of Christian mutations, right into modern hardline Protestantism or online cults like the loose movement known as QAnon, which tends to emphasize a highly dualistic quasi-theology, and in fact this is maybe the only across-the-board characteristic linking all the disparate manifestations of the cultural freakout known as Q. Uh, To illustrate this idea of dualism, though, as a sort of flavor or vibe or approach, let's get concrete again. Luckily for us, in the same smallish provincial city in the late 3rd century Roman Empire where Stephen Rupert lived, there are a couple of dualists living, or at least a couple of people who will be helpful to us in fleshing out what we mean by dualism and why the term can lead to problems. One of them, we'll call her Mabel, is a manichee. So on paper, as it were, She belongs to the gold standard of dualist sects. See episode 123 of the podcast for an introduction to Manichaeism. But here's the thing. When you talk to Mabel, or if you go into her house and read her selection of Manichae texts on her bookshelf, and remember the textual corpus of Manichaeism is very flexible, so we're not going to be surprised when we find in Mabel's library some Christian writings and many other things, right? You don't get a very dualist impression All Mabel talks about is the light. God is light personified. The light is triumphing, and our world is a place which, while it's not perfect, it's in a state of ever-increasing perfection and illumination. The light is winning. Mabel is pretty upful for a hard dualist. In fact, you can see why Jason Badoon, eminent scholar of Manichaeism and of Augustine, typified the gloomy, sin-obsessed, Augustine as a failed manichae. I mean, Augustine is so, well, dualist. But then just across the road from Mabel, there is a Christian lady living. We'll call her Gladys. Gladys totally rejects Mabel's religion. Gladys is hip to this newfangled Christian idea of heresy. And once she learned that Mabel was reading the Gospel of John and other canonical Christian writings, alongside her genuine Manichaean writings, as it were, she quickly decided that Mabel was not just a non-Christian, she was a heretic. She's not a pagana, a pagan, she's a heretic. But Gladys totally rejects Mabel's tradition, not only on what you might call grounds of social exclusion or group building, like the us-and-them building, by which uh, exclusive traditions like Christianity form themselves. It's not just this that Gladys rejects Mabel for. She rejects Mabel's position on theological grounds. Mabel recognizes that there is an eternally existent, or subsistent, let's say, principle of darkness. And Gladys affirms that there is only God who is eternal, the God of light, of life, of truth, etc., etc. So Gladys is, on paper, totally non-dualist and really aggressively non-dualist in the sense that she's anti-Mabel. But when you listen to Gladys talk, all day long it's Satan this, demons that, the world is a veil of wickedness and sin, darkness is all around us, only the very few elect can escape the darkness. She sounds pretty dualistic. So gentle listener, we come to the end of our dérive through the intellectual thickets of monotheism, henotheism, polytheism, and dualism. As promised, we haven't come up with hard definitions of any of these terms. They don't admit of such. What we've done is emphasized a few things which I think are important for understanding late antique religious thought and religious thought going forward into the Middle Ages. Firstly, it gets really complicated on the ground. Secondly, when discussing monotheism or polytheism, we need to differentiate between the theological positions involved So, we believe in only one God. We believe in lots of gods. And the larger suite of attitudes and exclusionary practices which might or might not accompany a given instance on the ground. Rupert, as we saw, was a typically polytheist or even pagan Christian as far as his actual life went and how he lived and what he did and so on. While Steve was kind of an orthodox, monotheistically-flavored polytheist. Hmm. Thirdly, it is to this larger suite of characteristics, one god, only one god, and the accompanying cultic and social corollaries of that position, which characterize what we tend to mean by monotheism and which will play such a big role in how late antiquity develops. But even here, there's much mushiness when it comes to the reality on the ground. Fourthly, there is this idea called dualism, but it really isn't a position at all in its hardcore form, except for maybe uh, Zoroastrianism and uh, Manichaeism. But when we bring in mitigated dualism, well, that's a kind of approach to reality, which tends to see conflict between good and evil principles as the central story of the world. And here we find an awful lot of Christians. And I don't just mean Gnostics and Bogomils. I mean St. Augustine and pretty much all Protestants, among other groups we could name. Now that we've taken this little detour into scholarly second-order terms, I think it's high time we dived back into the details of religious, or more precisely magical, belief and practice on the ground in late antiquity, don't you? So join us next time for a discussion of late antique Jewish magical traditions with the inimitable Gideon Bohack. And until then, stay esoteric.